Uh, We are this morning in Psalm 46. This was Martin Luther's favorite hymn. We just sang the, uh, the hymn that he wrote based on Psalm 46. Mighty fortress is our God, based out of this psalm. And then Josh just sang for you another song based pretty straightforwardly out of Psalm 46. But Martin Luther had come to know God as his mighty fortress. And so he wrote this, uh, <clears throat> that hymn, uh, reflecting it. But let's, let's read Psalm 46. Hear the Word of God. God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountain be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a great river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He has made wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and He shatters the spear and He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true that you are a mighty fortress, that you are with your people, that you are with us in the midst of everything that we go through, that you are a refuge and a strength and a help in time of trouble. Father, some of us have come this morning. We are in trouble in various ways. Physically, we struggle with our health, with circumstances in our lives, with loss, with strife in relationship, in in our homes, in our marriages, with our children, perhaps in our jobs, in our culture, in our country, in the election that we're going through. Father, in so many ways, we need to know that You are a mighty fortress for Your people. So hear us. Come near, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther was living in some times of great controversy and upheaval. In fact, he was the lightning rod for that controversy and upheaval. He was at the center of so much of what was going on at that time to such an extent that the things that he was saying as he was in many ways initiating the Protestant Reformation. He wasn't the first one to say a lot of the things he was saying, but uh, he was saying them loud and clear. He was saying them from a position within the church. He was saying it as a teacher. He was, he was saying it clearly. He was defining it in 95 theses. He was 
he was um, <clears throat> commentating on it in his teaching. He said it so clearly and so powerfully that the church itself went to war with Martin Luther. It died of worms in 1521 where he took his stand on the Word of God and could do no other. It was followed by the Pope excommunicated him and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V declared that he was an outlaw and said that anyone who gave him harbor was a criminal and would be put to death and that Martin Luther himself could be, it was a kill on sight order and you didn't have to be anybody special to do it. Anybody who saw him could kill him and would have no legal repercussions. So, he was hunted. And he was on the run. And one of the German princes, Frederick III, uh, spirited him away, on the way from that that, uh, diet, which is a a conference basically, a church uh, gathering, and he spirited him away and hid him in his castle in Wartburg. And so I don't know if, if living in a castle and reading and translating and teaching God's Word and and that kind of a thing. And so those two things came together to give him this image in his mind that God is a mighty fortress as he himself hid in this castle and read these psalms. The psalm is easily divided into three sections. You see it. Most translations have it broken up because at the end of verse 3, there's a Selah. At the end of verse 7, there's a Selah. And at the end of the psalm in verse 11, there's a Selah. Uh, what is a Selah? Nobody is exactly sure. <laughs> so if you've studied that and looked into it, it it's not real clear. Many have, have posited that maybe it's a, uh, it's a word, it's, it's a pause in it to say, think about that. Reflect for a minute. Be still and know. Uh, selah. So, it breaks up into these three sections pretty nicely done by the one who wrote it and the musicians who sang it. It gives us three sections. The first section introduces for us uh, a, uh, a time of great turmoil. A massive upheaval. A world shaping destruction. Right? And we'll see that in verse 2. But before he gets there and he, and he introduces that time of upheaval, he makes this bowl. He comes out of the gate in the psalm. And I love it when the psalmists do that. Whatever else they talk about, sometimes in the middle, usually at the beginning or at the end or both, the psalmist grounds himself in the truth. And so he comes out of the gate in verse 1 with this marvelous confession. Right? God is our strength and our refuge. He is a very present help in time of trouble and therefore we will not fear. Right? It's a bold and confident beginning. He points us, whatever else we talk about, whatever else is going on, He points us to put our trust and our hope in the right place. Where is refuge found? Where is the strength for a people who are aliens and strangers in this world? that finds us more and more alien and stranger as the years go by. Where is our hope and our trust? Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our God. And that's what he says as he comes out of the gate. God is our strength. God is our refuge. God is our help. He's a very present help 
He is a God who is with us. And particularly, he says, in trouble. Right? He's with us at all times, and we, we know on days when we come, and they're bright mornings for us in worship, but it's a whole other thing to know that He is with us when the trouble comes. That He is our help in those times, when we are afflicted, when we are in tribulation. But He says in the midst of whatever affliction is you're dealing with, whatever trouble that you're in, we know that we do not have to be afraid. And that's what he says, therefore, because God is a refuge, because He is a strength, because He is our help, and He is with us in this affliction and time of trouble, therefore, I will not fear. How often does the Bible do that? How often does the Scripture tell you who God is? And then say, therefore, I will not be afraid. Therefore, I will not live in fear. We will not fear because we who believe and know God to be these things. Like Luther says, we tremble not for Him. We tremble not for whoever the enemy is at that moment in time. And he says, even though, and that's where these times of upheaval, this sounds like a huge tectonic shift, right? That's the plates of the earth that you know, create earthquakes and that kind of a thing. And then he says, we won't fear even though the earth gives way, even though it totters, even though it shifts, though the mountains are moved, and this sounds like a, an earthquake of, you know, the mountains are moved in, into the depths of the sea, either by it tumbling off into the ocean, or the oceans rising and sweeping over them in some kind of a great cataclysmic tsunami. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, the waters foam and they roar. For, the, for, the, for Israel, who was a land-bound people, and they did end up having a border there on the, on the sea, the, the sea was always a picture of chaos. It's when you stand on the edge of the shore and you look out and you can't see any land. And all you see is deep. And when the water in storms, when it churns and it roils and you know, does its thing, especially if you're on a ship that's out there, many a ship would go down. It's this image of chaos and power and God's power is seen as that he gives boundaries to the seas and rivers are far more tame and you'll see a river show up in here and rivers tend to be pictures of blessing and abundance and God's grace and nurturing and watering and he says even though the earth gives way in other words when the world is turned upside down when mountains which tend to be the tallest things on land are now things that are submerged under the deeps of the sea and are, are gone. Mountains are the biggest things we know. They're the tallest things we know. They seem like the most stable things we know. And so when they are swallowed in chaos, when they are swallowed in the chaos of the ocean and disappear, it is a, it is a troubling image of, of chaos. And some have, as they've gone to, you know, exposit this to try to understand what is he talking about. There, there wasn't, it seems, a great earthquake in Israel at this time. And so, there's a lot of imagery here that goes to probably more political and other kinds of events in the, in the time of the nation. And they, this image of the mountains, which seem to be the tallest and the biggest and the strongest things, often make good pictures of nations, countries, Governments. Plummer, one of the 
commentator said this, the righteous will not yield to disastrous fear. We will not fear. Though the nations are convulsed with terrible excitements and the apparent safeguards of society are gone, when everything seems to fall apart, that which seems monolithic and strong and big in the life, you know, dissolves. The things that seem to be boundaries, the boundaries of the sea contained, you know, and when they sweep over and, and overwhelm. And this thing kind, of ha- thing kind of happens in the world. Particularly in the ancient world, you say these kind of convulsions, empires rising and sweeping over. Even though the earth gives way. Even though we enter into these kind of powerful convulsions and upheavals, and we've seen them around the world in our time, they look various in the last centuries with world wars and the various wars that we've been in, but even now, um, whether it's abroad or at home, we're going through massive cultural shifts here in our country, shifts that have happened rapidly. I was reading a book on this, the cultural shifts, and he said they're different than ones that have happened over the centuries before, but starting in the 60s and really coming to its full fruition right now, you know, this, this monumental cultural shift that within about 50 years, that which had been the worldview and the moral foundations of a society that were in the 1950s, you could not imagine, even begin to imagine some of the things that are legal and are going on and, and, and the ways that they're being practiced, the speed with which that change has taken place. And not just that, that things have entered into and become acceptable, but there's been a reversal. Like now, if you're not with them, you are against them. It's not only not the dominant culture, but it has become that which is, you know, being marginalized and despised. The intolerant nature of this cultural shift, which does not brook any disagreement. And we become the ones where we had once the dominant cultural voice. How quickly the rise of radical Islam as it begins to engulf in so many ways, a striking at the heart of Western nations, its population growth. They say there are certain nations in Europe that within 20 years will have a majority Muslim population. The ability to enact the kind of laws that make it a Sharia or Islamic country in different ways. That, that simply because we have 1.5 children per couple and they have 10 to 15 per family. And it says you're just going to lose that battle. And they are patient. And they will wait. We're in the middle of a presidential election cycle that however it ends up will probably end with significant upheaval and conflict. I don't think there is a good, happy ending in some ways. And it's going to get interesting. Any way you look at it, we have some idea of what this is. We may not be in the same depth of upheaval that they had, but we stand on the margins of it. And we experience it culturally in other ways. Though the waters roar and foam. Seems like they do. Chaos on the boundaries. Mountains trembling, sinking. Things that seem like they would never sink. That are gone. Then he says in the new section, right? He starts the next section. He says, but... But there is a river, a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And God is in the midst of her. 
and she shall not be moved. She shall not be moved because God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, but their kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is a mighty fortress. And so he gives us these images right in this new section. He juxtaposes, I love that word, right? to lay alongside of each other to create sort of a, you know, a, an uncomfortable pairing. You know, he puts things next to each other. And so first juxtaposing from these churning waters in this crumbling world to a, a river, very tame and, and gentle and refreshing that fills the city of God. And you get this picture of peace and serenity that is marvelous in itself, a jewel in the midst of this thing. And then, but it's juxtaposed next to these other images. God's sovereign judgment of the nations. The image of God as a mighty warrior and a fortress for His people. Right? And the, the river imagery is not entirely clear. There have been some who said that, I mean, it's very clear that the streams make glad the city of God and, and the holy habitation of the Most High. And almost everybody has agreed that's Jerusalem. Right? The, the city of God and the habitation where He has placed the temple and in the temple the ark and, and with the ark His presence with His people. The city of God where He dwells so all Israel would gather to Jerusalem for worship, to gather to His presence where all of that would take place. So everybody's sure this, is, this, this place is Jerusalem which also becomes an imagery of so much more. Because it is the center and dwelling place of God with His people in the midst of a greater nation. And some have said, well, the, Israel, Jerusalem really never had a real river. You know, not like we've got the Tennessee River flowing through our town. You know, or that you have these great rivers that would flow. Jerusalem is not known for having a river. And so there's a little confusion. They would say, but it does have some streams. It did have some things that would that would bring water and would allow the city to flourish, but no great rivers. And so many have said, well, this is figurative because the river is not, there's no great river that way, but it's figurative because Jerusalem as the place of God's abode and there's so much that, you know, what could the river be? It could be, you know, the Scripture. It's the place where God feeds His people and speaks to them the Word of God that brings life and health and peace. It could be the temple. The temple was there. His Worship took place there. The ordinances of, of, of worship were there. So maybe the, the river is, is the temple where God is. Or maybe it's God Himself. The God who dwells in that temple in the midst of His people. Streams of mercy. Just seeing it is there is the center of His life with His people. And their streams of mercy are the blessings of His kingdom. Any way you take it. There is a river. And maybe it's all of those things. I think maybe the best way to take it is all of those things. All that God is for His people as He dwells with them. But Jerusalem becomes, Old Testament and into the New Testament, an image itself of God's people. Because it's the capital city of His kingdom where He is and where He dwells with His people. And it becomes an image of Israel itself or the people of God itself. And we see it as it runs on into the New Testament in Revelation. That it's a type and a picture of the church of God in all ages. Because in Revelation 21, we see the new Jerusalem, the holy city, 
Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. Right? The bride of Christ. Right? With 12 pillars and 12 gates. You know, that perfect number of His disciples and His people. And he, as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He, they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. You know, that has been the promise of God to His people. The essence of the covenant of grace since the earliest chapters of Genesis where He says, I will be your God and you will be My people. And how He makes that to take place. And so this is all about God and His people. And Jerusalem becomes that image. And He he adorns her as a bride, the bride of Christ for Himself. And He dwells with her as a faithful spouse. He is with her to help her, to deliver her. And He does. And there's this beautiful picture. Revelation 22.1, just a, a chapter later, a few verses later, it says that the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal, flowing out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Right? This at the at the end of ages when we're with God in eternity, you know, the new Jerusalem is his bride that comes down. He dwells with her and in the midst of her, and flowing from God in the midst of his people is this river of life. Right? This this image of of source of, of health and satisfaction and all that His people needs and He dwells in the midst of her as the source. It's the same image that we have here, isn't it? This river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High and God is in the midst of her and so she shall not be moved. And so the experience of verse 5 is the living out in the experience of verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength, and therefore she shall not be moved. And He is a very present help in trouble. And so God was with her, and He will help her when the morning dawns. And here our God is these things, and here is Israel in verse 5 experiencing these things. He will help her when the morning dawns. He is with us to fight for His people. I was thinking of this picture. The commentators go one place, but before I go Bible, I'm going to go Lord of the Rings, which is nowhere I always go. So, you know, this image that He will help her when the morning dawns, a people that are in trouble and in need of help. And there's that image in, in the middle of the, the two towers. One of the towers is, um, uh, is, is, is Saruman's, and he has an army that he besieges Helm's Deep. If you've ever seen the movie or read the books, and so, you know, there are the chief characters of the whole thing in, in, besieged in Helm's Deep and surrounded by an army of works and unable to break free. Sure, in the morning, their destruction will come. They've been in there. They've been retreating further and further in until they're in just the Hornburg, in the inner sanctuary of this fortress besieged by an overwhelming army and all seems lost. But on the morning, and the morning is when the battle resumes. Right? Everybody like everybody sleeps at night and takes, you know, but in the morning the battle resumes. The enemy kicks up the fight again. And in the morning, when surely this is their last stand, in fact, they put on their armor, they ride out and say, let's face it, you know, and they ride out to their to their glorious end. But there on the hill crests Aylmer and Gandalf 
and the cavalries of Rohan as they sweep over the hill into the flank of the army and sweep it away and turns victory, turns a sure defeat and utter destruction into an overwhelming victory that turns the tide of the war. If you like such things. Well, the, the Bible commentators go to the actual time. They, they wonder actually if this hymn was written during the time of, of uh, Hezekiah in Jerusalem. Sennacherib had besieged, uh, the northern kingdom had already fallen, Israel had fallen to Assyria, and uh, Assyria, Judah had held out as two uh, tribes in the south, and Sennacherib comes back again, this time to take the south, the holdouts, Judah, where Jerusalem is, and he sweeps down through and he takes all the fortified cities in Judah and ends up besieging Jerusalem. And it's the same situation you find in the Lord of the Rings. Besieged by this massive army. And all, everything else has fallen and it seems that doom is sure. Hezekiah prays in 2 Chronicles 32.8 and he says this, With him is the arm of the flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us in a time of need and to fight our battles for us. He has Isaiah with him. The two of them pray together and, and seek God in this moment. And Hezekiah sounds like the psalmist, the Lord our God is with us as a very present help to fight our battles. And when they wake up in the morning and, and, and prepare for the final battle of the siege, they discover that the angel of the Lord had come in the night and decimated the Assyrian army. That he had struck down tens of thousands by whatever tool he does it. They wake up to find a defeated army at their gate. Already beginning to pack up and withdraw. And so maybe this psalm is written in the experience of Israel standing there. Uh, inside the fortress of Jerusalem. Besieged by these enemies. And finding themselves miraculously delivered. And so this is what we see in the verses of Father, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We didn't even have to strike a blow. We didn't have to fight at all. We prayed. And we found that God, the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth is His name. The Lord of hosts fought for us. And we find ourselves delivered because we find ourselves in Him. And so the third section opens First, I wanted to touch. Uh, I don't want to go to the one. Six and seven. He doesn't move to the next section. So verses six, as he says, the God of hosts will help us. And he, he, in the morning dawns, He will help us. And so though the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Right? The kingdoms totter. They shake. They fall. But he says, God is in the midst of her, in the midst of Israel. She will not be moved. But the nations will totter and fall. It says that He utters His voice and the earth melts. The God who created the earth undoes the earth. The God of hosts speaks and armies literally dissolve before the gates of Israel. Literally dissolve before the gates of Jerusalem. It wasn't the walls of Jerusalem that broke the Assyrian army. It was the mighty fortress who was their God who broke the armies of Sennacherib and Assyria. And so my friends, when we are weak, the strong one is among us. 
When we are vulnerable, He is our fortress. It is Yahweh of hosts who fights when we cannot. Or when the odds are overwhelming. And so when we finally move to this last section, it is, it is standing back in that middle section. God is in the midst of His people and He has done a mighty thing in speaking and melting the armies of the enemy. And so He says, come and behold the works of Yahweh. Not come and see what a great warrior I am. And sometimes we want to do that. We overcame. We did. We, you know, I was smart. I was the wise one. I, however, we trust in horses and chariots. However, we trust in ourselves and our own gifts and our own ways. The psalmist steps back and says, come and behold what God has done. Come and, and see the sovereign intervention of, of God to save His people. The God who fights for us, who delivers His church from the rage of their enemies. And so when it says He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth, He is talking about destroying the enemies of His people. When He makes wars cease, it means He makes them to stop warring against His people. That when He comes and He breaks the bow of Assyria and He shatters their spears and He burns their chariots and He causes their war to cease. That He delivers His people sovereignly. That, in other words, He fights for us. He does it. He delivers. Right? And it's real obvious the first application of this as we think about it and stand back that well, the Assyrians were a great army. And many other armies came against Israel in the years to follow. We know from Scripture that whatever those armies are, they also are a type of a much greater enemy. They also are a picture of a much greater foe that we need defeated. And so what, this is why there's a lot of confusion when Jesus comes. And what enemy it is that He actually goes to war with. Because He comes to fight for us. Right? This is the picture. The warrior God came. He dwelt in the midst of us. Right? He, he took on flesh and dwelt among us and dwelt in our midst and He did it. He became incarnate to confront our enemies and to deliver us from those who had, apart from Him, a cause is lost. We will not win. We cannot win. But He fights for us and He wins the victory. He lives the life that we failed to live. He dies the death that we deserve to die. He rises again, showing victory over sin, death, and the devil. My friends, when he, this word comes, to be still and know that I am God and that I will be exalted. And I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted across the earth. That at first, it is a word to us, but it is first a word to the nations. And it's first a word to those who stand outside of His people. It's a word to those who still fight against Him. Those who are not His yet. It's a call, it's a command to sit down, to take stock, to behold the works of a sovereign God who reigns sovereign over the earth, who is able to deliver. Sit back, be still, and know that there is a God. And that He will be exalted. Consider His sovereign power, His works through history. 
Be silent. Let your tongue cease to speak and acknowledge your God. Isaiah 45, he says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that the people may know. From the rising of the sun and from the west, that is that the whole earth will exalt. Right, The people from the rising of the sun, they will know that there is none beside me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I speak and the earth melts. I make well-being and I create calamity. I, Yahweh, am the one who does all these things. Behold the works of the Yahweh. Daniel 4, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to all of His will. Among the host of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth, there is none who can stay His hand. There is none who can say, what have you done? The whole earth, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He alone is Lord. I will be exalted. It's not that He needs us to exalt Him. Right, I was thinking about this, or those who say this God who needs us to exalt. He doesn't need to be exalted. And this is a really poor, uh, perhaps, or a little weak illustration, but uh, thinking about the ways in which things take their proper place because of who and what they are. And I was thinking, you know, we need to acknowledge food as necessary for life. And so it is a source of life. If we don't eat, we die. And so we, we must acknowledge our necessity for it by spending a great deal of our time earning money to buy it and eat it. And so there's this way that we acknowledge its place. And, and food doesn't need us to exalt it. It doesn't need us to ascribe to it, its, it the fact that it's a source of life. It just is. And it is for our good that we recognize that it is what it is. And it is in the same way like here that God is who He is. It is for our good to acknowledge reality. To continue to resist Him. To continue to fight against Him. God will be exalted simply because of who He is. Because He is God. Because He is the source of life. And one day we will face the Lord and the giver of life as judge. And the call that we would exalt Him is a call that we would be saved. To bow the knee to Him and acknowledge who He is. To be still and know that He is God. There may be some here this morning who are still in rebellion. Some who refuse to acknowledge Him. Who are not still before Him. You're still roused. You're still not convinced. You're still fighting Him. You're still resisting Him. You don't want to give up and let Him be Lord in your life. To let Him be God to you. So that you bow the knee and follow Him and do His will and do His way. And so you fight. Hear Him this morning calling you to be still. To cease your rebellion. To consider your ways. To consider Him. And who He is. To quiet your arguments. To quiet your objections. And know that He is God. And that He's calling you to Himself. Calling you to surrender your life to Christ. The Lord who is a warrior who has fought for you. To deliver you from the penalties of your sin. And the penalty of death. 
It's also a word to us who have already surrendered. Be still and know that I am God. And I mean, you and I still live in times, we say, of great upheaval, whether it's in the nations and in the world around us or in our personal lives, in our own home, in our own marriage, where we're in the same upheaval. And there's still this, when things don't go according to plan, he says, still, we need to be still and know that he is God. Every week. That's why we gather for work. And there's a sense in which of all the doing that you've been doing, you know, you are the ones who have come to be still in these moments, to sit under His Word and to, and to sit and join your voices and to, to know, to be still from all the other labors, all other things that occupy us, all other things that we, in a sense, exalt in our lives. To know that He is God and to get our souls recentered on who He is. To remember and to know We need to do it every week. We need to do it in many ways every day to center our souls, to consider again as we read these kind of Scriptures, to stop. There are many ways that we need to repent of our busyness. Because I do believe the only way to really know that He is God and live like He's God is to be still long enough that the knowledge of Him seeps deep in a sense, captures us for Himself. Edwards says it this way, Jonathan Edwards, he says, as to the inward frame of our hearts, I love that language, to the inward frame of our hearts, cultivating a calm and quiet submission of the soul to the sovereign pleasure of God, whatever it may be. Right? This is to be still and know the inward frame of our hearts shaped into a still and quiet submission to the sovereign pleasure of God, whatever it may be. Here's where we find shalom. We need to take the time, the time to be still and to find that peace which passes understanding. This psalm was written for those who are in trouble, for those who are in adversity. It's an invitation to discover that God is your refuge and your strength. He is a present help. There is a river that is the refreshment and the center of our lives in the midst of the storm. And that peace, that river that is cultivated, the stillness of trust of the soul in God is nurtured and developed as we are with Him in His Word and in worship. It's an invitation for us to discover. Martin Luther said, we sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us. He powerfully and miraculously preserves and defeats. And He defends His church and His Word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. We sing this psalm to the praise of God because He is with us as our defender. And so Luther was known to say to his friends, as he fought, as he was in the Reformation, as he was on the run, and they hunted him down for his life, and, and his times were difficult, and as he felt the enemy closing in, he would say to his friends, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm, and let them do their worst. I love it. This, this frame of heart, right? Isn't that a frame of heart? Come, let us sing the truths of Psalm 46, and let them do their worst. Worse, let kins and you know, uh, goods and kindreds go. This mortal life, 
also. Their rage we can endure. For lo, their doom is sure. One little word will fell them. My friends, this frame of heart belongs to those who have been still long enough to know that He is God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that we are not very still. We are very busy. We are doing. We don't even know what we're doing. We're doing all kinds of stuff. We're playing games. Father, you know. Our lives are full. Our minds are full. Our hearts are full. Our schedules are full. We are busy. And in the midst of it, we lose sight of you. In the midst of it, we lose the gift of that shalom, that, that still that is at the center of our souls. It knows that you are God. We know that the gift of the Sabbath was the gift of stopping, of ceasing, of being still. Father, teach us to be still. Teach us to come to You that we might know You in such a way that our souls are free from fear and full of joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.